are listening to the Party in My Plants podcast, and this is first airing on American Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. This episode isn't a happy one, but it's all about being thankful for the cards you've been dealt, the stories that shape you, and even the traumas that have affected you. It's a chat almost as heavy as gravy, so get ready. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. This episode is enthusiastically sponsored by a product I couldn't swear by more if I tried. Four Sigmatic Mushrooms. I didn't say swear about more. I said swear by. I couldn't swear by the magic of mushrooms more if I tried. I originally tried a packet of Four Sigmatic Mushroom Tea in a glass of hot water because, well, I was gifted a free single packet of Four Sigmatic Mushroom Tea by a friend. I had no idea what it did or what was going to happen to me. And I was skeptical because this whole mushroom thing is trendy right now. And I'm always skeptical of trendy things. Read, I avoid trendy things to not be trendy. You know what I mean? But anyway, I drank the shrooms and I felt truly awesome. It's hard to explain. I just felt more awesome than before I drank it. Since then, I've ordered it and consumed about two packets of shrooms a day and I can't get enough. I am telling you, these mushrooms are magic. Although they don't make me hallucinate in a bathtub like my ex-boyfriend's famous magic mushroom experience, which honestly, he seemed way too proud of in hindsight. But hear this, I wasn't hallucinating the magical effects of these shrooms. They are ultra scientifically proven to boost immunity and gut health. Yes, please. And thank you. And the four different shrooms that Four Sigmatic uses most, hence the four in Four Sigmatic. Eh? I just got that too. Well, like three minutes ago. But they all do different epic things for your body. Rishi helps you relax. Cordyceps give you non-caffeinated energy for sports and stuff. Lion's mane, which does not come from my lion's mane, boosts your brain. That one's easy to remember. And chaga is, yeah, yeah, good for immunity issues like when you're traveling or feeling run down and or both. Okay, enough blabbering from me. I just finished a mushroom matcha latte. Oh, yeah, Four Sigmatic has mushroom matcha powder. If I could just stop blabbering for a damn second, I could tell you that because you listen to this podcast, thank you for that, you can save 15% off any and all Four Sigmatic shroom stuff you want to buy off their site, Four Sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com using code PARTYINMYPLANTS to save that 15%, baby. Man, maybe I had way too much mushroom matcha. Okay, onward to the show. Before I let this interview roll, I gotta say that something I'm not thankful for this Thanksgiving is my microphone being defunct when I recorded this episode. The sound quality sucks. There, I'm owning it. More about that in this chat. But I'm so sorry, the sound sucks. Is this the type of thing I can blame on Mercury in retrograde? Also, I want to preface this chat by saying it's not my usual bubbly hee 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 kind of content. It's a dark one. 
dark like pecans when toasting them gets taken too far. This was not an easy interview for me to conduct, and I was slightly scared to publish it. But when I listened back, I heard a story of appreciating our hardships and owning our unique past, and I think that's a lesson worth sharing. So here we go. My guest today is a survivor, a speaker, an activist, and a storyteller. She's a wearer of many hats, which we get deep into in this chat. This is also a deep chat in many other ways because my guest and darling friend, Brittany Piper, has overcome not just one, but many of the most horrific events any of us could imagine. Sexual assault, the death of her brother, eating disorders, and alcoholism. Not to sound cliche, but Brittany turned her pain into purpose and is now a leading national expert speaker on sexual violence and prevention, as well as a healing and wellness coach. She uses her story of adversity, resilience, and triumph to empower and inspire women to take brave action in their own lives and communities. And she uses her story of trauma to inspire me and this interview to own my own stories even more than I already own my own stories. And I hope she inspires you in this chat to own yours too. And to watch more Law & Order SVU. Brittany, your life and story, or really your stories, cover a lot more serious terrain than my normal light-hearted topics. But you are just such a warrior that I just had to share your story. I mean, you've lived through more things in your not-so-many-years than most people live in their entire lives. So I honestly don't even really know where to begin. There's so much. So why don't we start by you telling listeners who you are and what you stand for? Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. I thought well, I was giving you an easy an easy layup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So who am I? Well, I feel like that's always changing, number one. So my name is Brittany Piper, uh, and I wear a lot of different hats. That's kind of how I like to describe myself. I'm a wellness and healing coach. I'm a speaker. I'm an entrepreneur and uh, a soon-to-be author, uh, amongst many other things. But I guess we can just kind of start from there. And you actually do wear physical hats often, too. Yes, I do. I'm, and you look great I'm obsessed that. with hats. <laughs> so that's perfect. You wear them, and you have them, and you claim them. So that's awesome. Exactly. Any, any advice, just right off the bat, for finding a good physical hat to wear on your head? Oh, my goodness. Um, one that's not too constricting. Don't wear hats on airplanes because... You might sweat in your hat, and that's no no bueno for the hat and no bueno for your forehead. Um, I don't know, but just just be daring. Just wear something that, you know, you're not trying to look good for anyone else, just something that makes you feel good about yourself, I guess. I love it. I feel like (laughs) wearing hats takes some confidence. I mean, it's like you really got to step out there and and own it. Yeah, you definitely do. And it's funny, I actually just... um, I had a photo shoot last week and every outfit, I had five different outfits. The photographer was finally like, are you really going to wear a hat in every single single outfit? And I was like, shall I not? And she's like, maybe, maybe not for one. So yeah, hats are, hats are my jam for sure. Wow. This is the hat episode. I had no idea. We're two minutes in and we're just on hats. (laughs) Let's see how long we can take it. Well, one of the hats that you 
wear not on your head in your life is a wellness coach. And let's start by talking about how you came to a place of prioritizing your wellness, because I know through your story that that has been the opposite of what your life looked like many years ago. So do you want to explain how you've gotten to this place where you are just a bundle of glowing wellness? Yeah, how I got to where I'm this glowing bundle of wellness. Well, <laughs> Under a hat. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'm I'm quite there yet. I'm still a work in progress. I think I always will be. But yeah, that's a very layered story of how I got there. Um, should I just start from the beginning or do it? Yeah. I mean, I, all right, let's just be it. let's just be frank with folks here. So when I said that this is a much more serious story, your story involved alcoholism, the death of your brother, and being raped, which are topics yeah. I've never explored or I don't even know if I've ever I, I, I know I, I've never spoken to somebody who's been raped and I even feel very uncomfortable speaking those words to you. Sure. So I don't even know how wellness has been the result of all that trauma. So if there is a way to connect that, share it or just, you know, tell your story, girl, because you have an incredible story. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, that's I mean, it, it all, all of my wellness is rooted from my trauma. So I guess I'll just, I'll take it back. Um, yeah, about, I've never even heard of that. I mean, I've yeah. gotten to wellness because I had tummy issues and, you know, other people get into wellness because like they have allergies and skin issues, but like yeah. I've never spoken to somebody who's had a uh, turn into wellness through all that trauma. So it's very inspiring already and fascinating. So please share. Yeah. So Okay, so we'll just kind of back it up. Um, I grew up in a home, um, a very loving home, but my father left when I was very young. And I think that that's kind of when my, my trauma really started. But my stepdad came into my life when I was a little over two. And um, so, you know, we kind of had a dad growing up, but that was something that I think wasn't quite tangible for me. And I didn't realize until later on in life, but I had kind of those feelings of, of abandonment. And then when I was 15 years old, my older brother, Dominic, he was 18. Uh, he was killed in a car accident when we were in high school. And I think that's when the, the tangible trauma in my life started. And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to cope with the trauma, the pain, the grief, the anger. And so I resorted to numbing myself. And that's where I found the bottle. That's where I... Um, turned to alcohol and substance abuse. And that's kind of where my life took a turn for the worse for probably uh, 10 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll be 30 next week. Woo! Next week. Woo! Yeah, next week. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been, um, it's been a very up and down road for me. When I went off to college, my first year of school, um, I was 19 years old and I was still not handling my brother's death very well. I was drinking heavily and I ended up in a hospital one night with alcohol poisoning and I flatlined at the hospital oh with a blood alcohol content of a 0.38. Oh. And that wasn't even, I hadn't even made it through my first year of college when that happened. And so that was kind of like my first rock bottom, I guess you could say. So 
Um, I was going to school in New York City. I decided to move home, you know, that's just, and to not go back to that school that I needed to be around family and friends. Yeah. I kind of got my act and got my life together, if you will. And um, then a year later, I was out one night with friends and I left my phone in a friend's purse. And after going home and realizing that my phone was in her purse, I decided to venture out in the middle of the night in an area that I wasn't very familiar with. And um, I hit a pothole and ended up at a gas station where a man helped me to change my flat tire. And although I offered him money numerous times as a way of saying thank you for helping me change my tire, he asked for a ride home repeatedly and I gave in, I gave, decided to let him into my car. And, um, sometime later he directed me down, um, a dark alley and oh. I tried to speed up the car to leave because I knew that something was wrong. And, uh, essentially I was brutally raped and beaten. Oh God. Um, it sounds like a horror film. Yeah. Your life. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it really was. Um, it was, it was it was one of the worst things i've I've ever been through, and i I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone um I was in in the hospital um and the only reason why I ended up reporting what happened to me is because when I came home, my friend had saw obviously you know something had happened to me. I mean the state that I was in was not good. I had lacerations on my body and my face um my jaw had been the cartilage in my jaw had been torn oh. um it was it was pretty bad. And so she said, we're taking you to the hospital. And then she called my, my parents on the way and told them what had happened. Um, but because I was under the age and because I was drinking that night, because I did let that man into my car, I don't know that I would have reported it myself. And so it's just like law uh, and order. A lot yeah, of the rape yeah. victims don't want to report it. And Olivia's always yep. like, no, you are reporting it. And they're like, no, I don't want to. Dude, she's like, you're doing yep. a rape kit. And they're like, no. Mm -hmm. And then she yep. does. And then it ends up, you know, saving them in a way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's and, my you closest know, I, relation to what I you're saying know. right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where my life would have been or how my life would have turned out if I, if I hadn't reported that. Um, and if my friend hadn't put me in her car, taken me to the hospital, you know, and called my parents on the way, um, I don't know that I would be here today. But um, subsequently, I fell into really bad and unhealthy, destructive behaviors again, and, um, you know, resorted back to drinking heavily, even though I hadn't been drinking for quite some time. And um, I also was dealing with eating disorders because I had a lot of shame and guilt. You know, I blamed myself a lot for what had happened to me. And kind of for a few years, that's where my, my life headed until another episode where I was drinking one night and um, I was in the car with someone who had been drinking. And that should give you an indication of where I was at in my life at the time. Um, so this person got pulled over, got arrested for driving under the influence. And then I didn't want to get into the car to go home because I was drunk. And uh, so the police officers, when they went to grab me, I kind of had a flashback from the night of my assault and um, I just lost it. And I ended up in jail with uh, two counts of battery on an officer with injury, resisting arrest, intimidation. And um, that was really like my rock bottom or what I tell people like that jail cell was my concrete bottom. And, uh, that was a big wake up call for me. 
I just knew that my, my life needed to change. Um, otherwise I was literally going to die or I was, you know, I was going to do something to hurt someone else. And so I made the decision that instead of living my life bitter and suppressing all of these things and just running from my pain, that it was time to really acknowledge it and uh, face it head on. And so I did just that. And I started going to therapy and um, just dealing with my pain. And then um, I switched my majors in college and I started focusing on women's issues and, you know, the reasons for why women are in these places where you know, sexual assault and abuse is so prevalent in our society and in the world. And that's something I became really passionate about. And so I finished college. And after college, I went off and I was working as a uh, photojournalist for women's organizations and women's crisis centers in conflict countries. And I did that for a number of years. But I think that ultimately, I was still suppressing or numbing you know, kind of what I was going through. There's actually, there's an amazing quote by Brene Brown. And um, I think it says something like you either walk inside your story and you own it, or you stand outside of your story and you hustle for, for worthiness. And I literally, I think I remember when I read that, that was in between one of my trips, um, I was home and I read that book and I was like, holy crap, like this is, so true to my life. I'm literally living outside of my story, like Mm. as a, as a journalist, like I'm in another country, like in another environment, like I'm, I'm in this conflict, you know, environment and I'm living in other people's stories and I'm helping them to share their stories, but I'm not owning mine. And so, and then on top of that, I was hustling for, for worthiness. And so I was doing things that would make people say, we're so proud of you and we're so inspired by you. But on the inside, I was still living with so much shame and like self-hatred. Right. And so I think that's when I realized like it's time to stop hustling and it's really just time to like slow down and focus on yourself. So that's when, you know, I came clean about the eating disorders. That's when I really started opening up about my story and just speaking my truth. And a lot of that shame just started to to go away. Um, I think that when shame is is met with empathy, that it's just it's impossible for it to live on. And so my my story connected me to other people who experienced the same things. And then I realized, you know, I can really make a difference in other people's lives by just sharing my story. And so I started to do that. And I started to share my my story of, of healing, but also of, you know, the mental health and the abuse, the the substance abuse that I went through. And the response was that so many people were dealing with the same thing. And so that's why I got into the whole wellness sphere and really just kind of dived into that space. Um, that's the long version. You that. That was amazing. Where I am, where I am now. That was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, when yeah. it's it's interesting because when you say I tell my story or I you know inspire through my story, I, my mind's like, which story? Because you have yeah. like many stories that in and of themselves would be an in remarkable, you know, unfathomable story, and you have so many of them. So I've heard you say that your greatest purpose can you know be rooted in deepest pains and. I'm curious, how did you begin to allow the pain and the trauma from all of these experiences in your life to transform you and turn you into a positive person and stop 
the spiral that you had been on? Yeah, sure. So um, I think that, you know, when I came back home and I started focusing on myself and my own recovery and my own healing and just prioritizing me first, I think out of the abundance of that self-love that I had for myself, I was able to truly look at people and love people and walk with people in the way that they needed. And so I, I think that, again, me prioritizing my healing and my recovery was a really big part of that. And then once I had clarity and I had, you know, just that affirmation that there is purpose in my pain and that by you know, tending to my own wounds and healing myself that I can also be helping others at at the same time. That's when I decided that, you know, I really wanted to make like a full time career out of it. And that's when I started to realize that like my pain really is like the greatest gift that I've been given. And I don't know why in in the Western world, you know, I feel like when I was in, in Africa and Asia and things like that, people were open, much more open about the things that they went through. Oh. But here in the Western world, we're so hush-hush, and we don't share our stories because of shame, because of stigma, because of judgment. And the truth is, is that we're all suffering. Like, everyone is suffering in silence. So I have found that by sharing my story, it's a way that I've been able to be like a guiding light to other people. And that courage for, for me to come forward and that vulnerability, it always empowers other people to do the same thing. Oh, and yeah. You know, like when you just look at the Me Too movement, for instance, you know, one person comes forward and then someone else feels courageous to do the same thing. And it's this, this yeah. domino effect. And um, so I just started to, to look at my pain differently. It started to, instead of me looking at my pain as this trauma, like this opposition in my life, I started to look at it from the perspective of the latter, of it being a healing in my life and an opportunity to help others, you know, rather than, than an opposition. Wow. How did you even begin to, to reframe that? <sighs> um, I mean, cause that's I know, like, you know, I, like <laughs> it's one thing, you know, for me who had digestive issues to be like, Oh, and I've, I've said this, I'm really glad I had my digestive struggles because it led me to eating healthier. And now I can help and inspire and empower other people to eat healthier for many other reasons than just digestive issues, you know, prevention and energy and longevity, blah, blah, blah. But it's another right. thing to look at the horrible experiences you've been through and find a silver lining. So, you know, how, how did you even begin to do that? Well, I think that I've always been one of two extremes. Like I either like at the opposite end of something where it's going horribly wrong or I'm like really excelling at something. And so I think that I really had to hit rock bottom to realize that I needed to go in the complete opposite direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that when I was in that space of, you know, substance abuse and eating disorders that I was not dealing with my pain at all. Like I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't acknowledging it. I was acting it. like this trauma and all of these things that I went through in my life and all of this adversity that, you know, uh, the best metaphor I can give is it's like a crumbled piece of paper, you know, like you crumble up a piece of paper. If you try and flatten that piece of paper out, there's still going to be those creases. Ooh. And what I was trying to do is instead of like using those creases to just build upon this already beautiful picture of my life, I was trying to throw that sheet out completely and start from a new sheet. Wow. And um, you just can't do that. 
You know, it's just, there is a before trauma and then there's after trauma and you are, you're, you're changed for life. And so I knew that I needed to just accept that this was now a part of my life and I could either hide it or suppress it, or I could own it and I could acknowledge it. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, share it into a microphone and share it with the world because a lot of people don't know that I've actually been through more trauma than I talk about. Right. Um, yeah. So there are things that like, I don't, I don't talk about, oh, um, you know, through a microphone or really on like a public platform, just because in my work and doing my own self work of healing, I know that there are certain places where I have boundaries for myself and I don't want to cross like a threshold of like triggering myself again for, you know, certain things. So I've come to realize that, um, you know, sharing that story, whether it's with a therapist, family member, you know, spouse or pastor, which, you know, all of those people know all of the traumas that I've been through. And for me, like having that, that support system was a really big thing, but it's really just, I guess, about owning it. Kind of like, you know, that quote says, like when you step inside your story and you own it, like that's when the, the shame, like that's where the shame can't live. It's funny. Owning it is one of my favorite, it's not even a saying, but it's one of my favorite things to say on a regular basis in almost every situation. I mean, I did a story, uh-huh. a storytelling event a few weeks ago where I was telling the story about how I was in line for ice cream and these gir- there was a handicap line, a handicap window where if you had, if you were handicapped, you could basically skip the entire multiple block long line for ice cream and cut the line and get your handicap ice cream. <laughs> and there uh-huh. were these, I, I love ice cream so much. I was like, Ooh, can I fake a handicap injury? My handicap. Da, da, da. And I saw these young girls who were like lingering out front of the handicap window. And one of them was in a knee brace, like a real knee brace, not like the tan skin tone mm-hmm. one, like the real one with the, you know, the metal. And I, and they were right. like too timid. And I'm like, this is for you. Own it own your injury go up and claim your ice cream girls and so I'm like encouraging them to own it I'm like yelling at them own it and then I'm like can I join you and then I ended up joining them and getting the ice cream with them and it was a happy ending for everybody but my point of that really (laughs) basic simple surface level story is that I think owning it is something that is so challenging for people whether it's owning it so you can get ice cream faster than other people or owning a trauma story so you can heal your eating disorder and alcohol abuse. So for you, how did you even begin to start owning it? And what is the connection really between owning your story and your past and healing an eating disorder? Because those seem very, you know, unconnected, although I I understand how they are, but Fill in the gaps for us. Mm-hmm. So how did I start to own it? Well, I'll preface by saying that I think everyone's healing journey is different. Like there's no one process that's right. Um, different things work for different people. Um, but for me, my way of owning it was by speaking it out loud, whether that was through a microphone, whether that was just to my therapist or my husband or my pastor or, you know, whoever was that support system for me. It was about speaking it out. And so that's really kind of where that started. And, you know, with the eating disorders at the time, I had already been a professional speaker on the topic of sexual assault prevention and um, survivorship 
um, you know, as a survivor of, of sexual assault, but I was still struggling with eating disorders. Mm. So for me, I knew that my way of owning it was by outing myself to the world. Huh. And I don't know that that works for everyone else, but for me, that's just something that I felt that I needed to do. So, you know, I told my now husband and people that were close to me what I was dealing with. And then I, after some time, maybe like a few months of um, being in recovery, which re recovery for me, you know, I went from, you know, when I was in college, I took Adderall. And mm -hmm. even though I should not have been prescribed Adderall, um, I took Adderall as a way to stay busy, as a way to keep myself um, preoccupied so that I wasn't dealing with all of, you know, the other stuff in my life. Um, that was my way of numbing as well. And when I got off of the Adderall and I was done with college, I started to gain weight. I didn't want to gain weight. And I was very uncomfortable in my skin. And I didn't like who I was. And I was very unhappy with myself. So then I struggled with anorexia. And then that turned into bulimia for about a year and a half. And um, it was really severe. And, you know, people were asking me if I was okay. And so when I finally, you know, told people what I was going through, I went from a space of being bulimic to then suffering from orthorexia because okay. wow. I was like, well, now I have to follow all of these fad diets and I have to eat super, super healthy. And I have to be on every single elimination diet out there, which means I can't eat sugar. I can't eat dairy. I can't eat gluten. I can't have caffeine. I mean, I was like a literal, like I was a rabbit, but I was <laughs> really unhappy. Right. And, you know, I was also still really unhealthy. And so I think by kind of outing myself, it was a way that I could hold myself accountable to the people that I was sharing my story with, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and that's when I started my wellness blog and then subsequently started my Instagram, which is Brit's Beating Heart, um, B-E-E-T, you know, beats, because I love beats. Nice. But it was more so about like, you know, and I think even just the name Brit's Beating Heart, yeah, sure, I was dealing with these eating disorders, but it was so much more about my beating heart and the heart work that I needed to do. Okay. And um, so that's kind of how that, that came to be. And when I started talking about my eating disorders and the substance abuse, because I think what was hard for me is I would finish a talk, you know, about sexual assault, and then people would come up to me and other, you know, young survivors, and they would say, I'm so inspired by you, and you're so courageous, and how did you get to this place where you're just so brave and so strong? And it just broke my heart because they didn't know the full context. They didn't know that I had actually been in jail just a few years prior or, you know, that I had, I had flatlined from alcohol poisoning or that I had suffered from eating disorders. And so I didn't want to paint this picture of recovery is perfect because it's not. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I came out and just owned it. And again, as I started to do that, so many people responded with, you know, kind of similar to me too, me too, I'm going through the same thing or me too, I've experienced that as well. And that's where my wellness practice really took off. And when I stopped trying to be like everyone else on Instagram and, you know, follow all the, all the fad diets, um, I instead started focusing on how I could heal through food and, the importance of eating healthy food and that bi-directional relationship between your gut and your brain and your mental health and 
um, that is just something I became really, really fascinated about. And mm. I just wanted to share that with everyone. I was like, holy crap, why does not everyone know about this? So, so you feel that eating well has actually like, so after you, it's tough because of the orthorexia then to be still a healthy eater. I mean, that there's a fine, yeah. fine, fine line there, but Overall, yeah. you'd say that once you, you know, got through the orthorexia and you were mm -hmm. just a regular healthy eater, you found that that lifestyle also supported your mental health and then thus helped you even more with all the trauma recovery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, and I think it was good for me to have a, a support system. Um, my husband knows so much about food and I've just been blessed to have him as a resource um, and to just have him as a, as a support system, just someone that I can be, you know, honest with, that I can be real with and that can see me for me, like my, my faults and all. And so I was able to have those real honest conversations with him. And he said, well, let's, you know, let's try and find a balance that works for you because balance is different for everyone. And I really hate the word balance. I was just going to gonna say, is you. balance even a thing? Let's be honest. <laughs> like, I, I hate the word balance, you know, like balance that worked for me when I was like 18 looks very different than the balance that works for me now. Like my balance that I needed yesterday is different from today. Like it's just, totally. it's a very confusing thing, but at the time, we were like, let's try and find something that's that, you know, brings balance to you. Because I didn't want to feel like I was in a place where I was restricting myself too much to certain food groups, because um, I just felt like that was another way of feeling like I was being controlled. And people who've dealt with sexual assault or abuse, that control thing can be really triggering. So it's almost like I was like re-triggering myself in some ways. Really? Um, yeah, I was like, it was like, self-destructive behavior. And, wow. um, I was like punishing my body still in some ways. And so, um, I decided, okay, you know what, let's just, let's just try to be, let's try this intuitive eating thing. And the more that I started learning about like how certain foods helped with these hormones and these foods helped with, you know, helped your body to feel this way, I started, you know, kind of like making meals for myself from the perspective of this is going to make me feel this way, you know, mm -hmm. rather than look this way. And, um, I started to like fall in love with making food that was like nourishing for my body that made me feel good. And, um, it was a way that I started to learn how to love myself again. Like it was an act of loving yeah. myself by giving myself healthy food, but I also treated myself to ice cream and cake. And if I wanted a burger, I could eat a freaking burger. You know, I mean, I didn't hold back on anything, but I learned to love vegetables and then my body started craving them. And, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't crave the junk food anymore. And I started learning the difference between comfort food and calming food. And, um, what's the you know, difference how, between comfort food and calming food? Uh, well, it's kind of a, uh, a term that I've coined actually. Tell me, yeah, <laughs> tell me, tell me. Um, yeah. So, um, it's something I, I talk about in my, my wellness workshops is that, you know, when you're in a really low place, um, people oftentimes crave foods that, you know, like comfort foods, foods that make them feel good. Um, but those are foods that really, um, spike your insulin levels and they make you crash and they make you feel like crap. And that's why we have food hangovers the next day. And so instead of, you know, gravitating towards those comfort foods, that's when you grab for calming foods. So foods that calm you down, 
for me, it's like avocados, um, nuts and seeds. Um, you know, I do a lot of adaptogens and I make like, you know, mushroom drinks and things like that. But that is like something that I started learning intuitively about my body is that when I would be triggered or I would be upset about something, I would want to have, uh, comfort food instead of calming food. So I'd get calming food instead, but there were some times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Grounding food. Um, but there were some times where I wasn't feeling triggered and I was just like, Hey, I just want a burger today. And I'd be like, sure, that's fine. Let's have a burger, you know? And so it's still like a relationship that I'm still learning more about how to listen to my body and just kind of lean into what it wants and what it's craving. But, you know, then I started learning about how you know, your serotonin levels, like 90% of your serotonin feel good hormone is produced and stored in your gut. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that the National Institute of Mental Health, they've, I think they put in like a million dollars in research a couple of years ago to study the relationship between the gut and the brain. And, um, you know, psychiatrists are finding that proper dietary changes and changes in, you know, nutritional lifestyle helps people with depression sometimes more than Um, you know, medications do. And so I just really started plugging into all of this research and, you know, knowing that this food is making me feel good. I think that's where my relationship with food just completely changed. That's awesome. Oh, that's a very happy ending. (laughs) I'm (laughs) smiley face period there. So, but to go back to being, you know, the not happy place for a sec, just because I've never had an opportunity to talk about this stuff. If I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm curious, how you overcame your, would you call it an addiction to alcohol? I mean, were you an alcoholic or were you just, my vibe is that you weren't in like, you know, wouldn't consider yourself an alcoholic. You would, you were just using alcohol a lot. Is there a difference? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So I don't, I don't consider myself an alcoholic. Um, but I don't think, you know, I think that there are alcoholics out there. Um, but for me, I, I don't prefer the title and I don't even say that I'm sober. Mm. I just know that alcohol and I don't get along. I think that alcohol was a tool that I used for a while to numb my pain and to wash away my sorrows and to disassociate from my feelings and and my body and myself. Um, But no, I don't know that I would consider myself an alcoholic. Will I drink one day? I don't know. But, you know, I went a very different route. Like I didn't go through, you know, I've, of course, been through AA meetings and all of that stuff, you know, through the many years that I was trying to quit and then drink again and trying to quit and drink again. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, um, I and, and again, I think every story is different. I think everyone's healing journey is different. But that really stopped for me after I started going to church. Um, and I found a lot of spiritual healing. Um, I went through ministry school. I got my ministerial degrees over two years of, of ministry school with my husband. And then Aww. we were on staff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then we were on, on staff full time at my church. And um, I don't know. I just think that that deep connection for me of something greater than myself um, just put things into perspective. And it's almost like, you know, those issues I had with alcohol, they just kind of went away. Wow. Um, I, I mean, of course, there was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of heart work and, you know, soul work that was going on. Um, there was a lot of talking with my church leaders and with my husband and just being very open and processing how I was feeling. But that was my platform for healing. Like, like that was my space to do that. 
That's really fascinating. Do you know yeah. of Gabby Bernstein and her work? Yes, I love Gabby Bernstein. Yeah. She's under amazing. She's incredible. And I know she didn't find the church, but she found her spiritual church. You know, she yes. she yep. was an, uh, an alcoholic and she mm-hmm. seemingly healed herself through finding the spirit and, you know, getting yep. guidance from the universe and falling all into that. So that's yeah, wonderful. Exactly. So you were, I, I, it was fascinating how you said you used alcohol as a tool for somebody else that might be using alcohol as a tool. And maybe they don't even have, I mean, your, your alcohol story is extreme on multiple accounts. I mean, it led you to the hospital, it led you to jail. Right. I mean, so, but for somebody who just feels that maybe they're using alcohol as a tool and it's just too much, you know, they're not getting arrested and they're not, you know, going to the hospital, but it's just, they don't want it. They don't like how they're using it. What's some advice you might have for them? Um, so my first advice that I always give people when they feel like they're in those places is to find someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to be a common theme for you. <laughs> yeah. And maybe because yeah. you're a well, speaker. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, shame is just, shame yeah. is such an ugly thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, and I think the only reason people aren't open about, hey, listen, I might be struggling with alcohol or I'm using it in a way that I'm not comfortable with um, is because of shame. And again, when, when shame is met with empathy, it just, it, it can't survive. And so, mm-hmm. um I think opening up to someone about it, um, that would be my, my first form of advice. And then, I don't know. I think, um, I mean, what's worked for me is trying to maybe find the intention behind why you're drinking. Like, mm-hmm. figure out if there are things that you are suppressing, if there are things in your life that you're running from. Right. And, um you know, and then find some ways to acknowledge those. And, you know, for me, I think that my drinking was, I always said that it was social anxiety. I'm Mm. like a really big introvert, which people are like, what, you're a professional speaker. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I always thought that my, my drinking stemmed from, yeah, just social anxiety. But I really think that, that the root problem of that was that I was so uncomfortable with myself and uncomfortable in my skin And that's because I was dealing with a lot of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. And so trying to look at, you know, why do you think you're drinking? And then maybe what are the root causes or what is that stemming from? And then addressing those issues. Um, For me, journaling was really, really helpful. Um, I learned to prioritize the relationship with myself. You know, if someone that you love comes up to you and they tell you, hey, listen, I think I'm drinking too much and not for the right reasons then you would sit down, you'd have a conversation with them, you would support them. And you try and find out or, you know, figure out a way to help them back to this healthy place. And so my question is, why don't we do that with ourselves? Mm-hmm. And so when I started doing like, you know, the heart work, the soul work, like the really hard work in my healing by myself, and a lot of that was self love and self care, I was doing a lot of journaling. And so I would write letters to myself, I would actually write letters to my heart. And then I would write letters to my body, like just saying, I love you, you've gone through this and that, but look where you are now. And just speaking that positivity over your life, I found was really, really helpful. It was a really profound way for me to learn to love myself again. And um, people, I think, who are drowning in substance, they're lacking that self love. 
And so building on that relationship is, is really important. And in my experience and what I've seen and what I've taught other people, it's been really, really helpful in their recoveries as well. Wow. I love that idea, writing letters to your body and, and your heart. What are some other, you know, self-care and self-love practices that you've benefited from over the years? Sure. So, um, well, breath work for me, actually, I learned it when I was working in India for a few months. Uh, I was living and working in India and I started doing yoga. And the well, OG start- place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I didn't start doing yoga, but I, I joined yoga classes there. And then at the end of my trip, um, after working, I actually went and it was a very much like eat, pray, love situation. <laughs> totally not even kidding. I stayed at my grandmother's guru's ashram uh, in Southern India in Kerala for about a week and a half. And I went through a lot of different, um, healing modalities and I learned about, uh, breath work and pranayama. And, um, that for me has become a big part of my self-care routine. And I think that people, especially who deal with, um, you know, adverse experiences or, uh, trauma, they are so much more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, science has shown like measurable differences in the amygdala, which is the, you know, the brain's fear response center uh, between people who've suffered from trauma and people who haven't. And research has shown that people who've experienced adversity, that their, their fight or flight responses, they're overexerted. And so they're constantly being triggered or feeling like they're being threatened. And so uh, their sympathetic nervous system is just constantly, you know, being alerted. And uh, pranayama or breath work is a direct way that you can control that sympathetic nervous system. Um, so by doing controlled breathing, you can like control your vagus nerve, mm-hmm. um, which essentially sends signals to your parasympathetic nervous system to, you know, switch into rest and digest rather than fight or flight. And so that's been a really, and that was just a bunch of information. I don't know why I just went off on that tangent. No, that was awesome. Uh, you threw in some science. Yeah. I was just thinking to myself, yeah. damn, this girl knows everything. <laughs> that was my thought. I'm like, she has science now. Wow. <laughs> I just, um, but I mean that, and well, and I, again, I think that's a lot of, a lot of my recovery has been learning like all of these different ways to like care for yourself, but then also like learning the research behind it. And it's something I've become passionate about. But I mean, just that the science itself speaks that, you know, literally controlling your breathing by just slowing your breath and like taking nourishing breaths and then letting go of anything that no longer serves you. I mean, it really does physically change um, your, 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 your brain activity. It, it changes the way that you live life and the way that you handle situations. And so, yeah, breath work, mindfulness, eating awesome food. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's so cool about this, you know, what I'm thinking right now is just that like, I have not had any struggles to the level of yours. I mean, at the beginning of this, of this chat, you said something like everyone is suffering. And I thought to myself, yeah, but I'm not, I haven't suffered the way you've suffered. And not that we need to like, you know, one up each other with who suffered more, but I, that's where my mind is and where it went. And it's the truth. So, but to hear you say, despite, you know, through everything you've been through that breath work and eating like clean, fresh plant foods are what have helped you 
heal, uh, among other things, obviously, like meetings and spirit and, you know, the church for you and therapy and all that. But but the healing modalities, the self-care it comes down to breath and, and plants. It's remarkable. It's 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 incredible. It's, I'm just like, wow. I mean, you're not you're yeah. not saying anything it's just so universal and stuff that everybody can do regardless of what degree and, and to what extent they've suffered or where they're at in their lives. It's just cool. Amen, sister. <laughs> yes. Amen, sister. Yeah. I, Fire it up. <laughs> well, th- that's the thing. And that's why, um, you know, I've just, uh, my wellness workshops and my healing workshops are so, um, they're not Western mindset. It's a very holistic approach to healing. And you know, the unfortunate truth is that when you talk about like adverse experiences or, um, you know, what, I don't know if it's science or what, what the health field refers to as adverse childhood experiences, um, or what they call ACEs. Have you ever heard of ACEs? No. So ACEs, um, they're adverse childhood experiences. And so those include things between the ages of, you know, being born and the age of 17, such as, um, substance abuse in the home, divorce, physical abuse, emotional neglect, mental illness in the home, um, sexual abuse, um, parents being incarcerated. I think there's like 10 things on that list, wow. but that's trauma. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people realize, you know, and th- that's one thing that, you know, as you're saying, you know, to compare your trauma to mine, that is one thing that always, again, breaks my heart is that a lot of people you know, Do we've that. made <laughs> this whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've made this whole idea that trauma has to be so devastating for mm-hmm. it to be trauma. Well, and you just that's said really divorce. not true. I mean, you, yeah. you listed divorce as one of those things. And my mind was like, yeah. wow. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I'm, that no, I yep. don't think many people would say I suffered through trauma in my life. I, my parents got divorced, but it's, well, it's somewhat crazy. comforting to hear you, you who's been through a lot of trauma, not again to one up, but you can to say, yeah, hey, that counts. You know, yeah, that's comforting. It absolutely does. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are studies like the ACE studies were started back in the '90s, I believe. Um, but essentially, what they found is that the people who experienced any of those like ten traumas, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. those people later on in life, they had a 20-year difference in life expectancy than people who did not experience any of those things. And so this trauma, even though people realize that, you know, they're like, well, I wasn't sexually assaulted or my brother wasn't killed in a car accident or, you know, all of these things that we just think are overwhelming trauma. um, They science has shown that these normal traumas, they completely change our physiology, our brain development, our immune system, our hormones. Um, I think they said that someone with four or more ACEs you know, who Uh experienced four of those things in that list, they're like four and a half times more likely to suffer from depression. And um, they're 12 times more likely to suffer from suicidality. And they have greater risk for um, disease and cancer. And again, those MRI scans show that there's measurable differences in the amygdala, which is, you know, the flight or fight response and that affects our immune system and our hormonal system. And so I don't know, I just, wow. there was, I think the most recent study they did on ACEs was in 2016. I can't remember who it was by, I think it was like the national children's health survey or something like that, but it pretty much came back and said that 45%, like around that number, I think just under half of 
the nation's population, children under the ages of 17 years old, had experienced at least one eighth, and that I think one in 10 of them had experienced three or more. And, you know, so there's a lot of people in this country that are just, they're suffering in silence. And um, I think the, one of the former presidents of the Academy of Pediatrics, he had made a comment that ACEs are like the single greatest unaddressed public health threat in this country. And the problem is, is that people are suffering, they're suffering in silence. You know, if you go to the doctor and you say, I broke my arm, you're going to get a treatment for Mm -hmm. it, right? You're going to get a cast, you're going to take care of yourself. If you have a cut, you're going to take care of it, you're going to clean it. And we don't treat trauma in the same way. It's just something that we don't address. And I think that the problem is, is that a lot of people think, well, I have to go to, you know, this eating disorder recovery center, or I have to go into this treatment facility for substance abuse or alcohol abuse, or I have to go to rehab. And even though those things might work for, you know, a lot of people, the reality is, is that there's a whole lot of other people who can't afford those services. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, learning skills that you can practice and routines that you can practice on your own that are scientifically proven to help you in your recoveries is so important. And a lot of that is just about self-care and self-love and just learning to accept and support yourself in really loving ways. And so that's and owning what a lot it. of, like you said, owning it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly. where it starts. Cause I'm thinking, well, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, well, first I think people need to acknowledge even in just in themselves, even though what I experienced wouldn't make, you know, an episode of law and order, you know, would classify right. as trauma for Olivia, my parents getting divorced was trauma for me. And it's okay for that to be called or classified trauma in my life. And then I would say, just based on what you're saying, that would be number one is just owning it and, and releasing the shame around. And, and I think, again, like, I think a lot of people would then look at you and be like, well, she has trauma. Like what my parents got divorced and like, I had to sleep at different homes each week. Like that's not trauma compared to her, but I think you can own it and um, acknowledge that that was trauma for you. And then I guess step two, if I'm making an order here based on just what I've learned from you right now is then sharing it with someone, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that the more that we own it and then the more that we share it, um, empathy is going to become normalized and empathy is the one thing that connects us all. Like empathy is the one thing that allows us to walk with each other in our pain. Mm -hmm. Whereas sympathy is just feeling sorry for people, but not like taking up their cause or helping them through it. But I think that the more that we're open about the things that we're going through, which again, you don't have to share it through a microphone. Not all of the things I've been through do I share through a microphone, Mm -hmm. but sharing it with your loved ones or a therapist or just someone. But when you, when you leave stuff in, you know, again, kind of like what I was talking about, if you cut yourself, you're going to clean it and take care of it. If you cut yourself, you're not just going to throw a Band-Aid over it and just, you know, pray and hope that it gets better without cleaning it, you know, and tending to that thing. Because if you don't, it's going to fester and it's going to turn into something way worse. And in my case, in many ways, that's what I learned over the years just does not work. So, man, I could talk to you for hours about this. My mind is being blown. I'm I'm just... (laughs) I don't know. This is, I, 
I've ne- it's so fascinating and wonderful to hear somebody like you just freely talk about these, you know, delicate matters. All right. Well, what is this feels so silly to ask you, but what is your favorite plant to eat? <laughs> oh my gosh, avocados. Ooh, okay, hands down. Love avocados. Well, uh... Yeah, avocados. Probably avocados and sweet potatoes. Mm, sweet potatoes. It's, it's like a close tie. Okay. And what and do you do with avocados? Like, oh, go ahead. The combination together mm-hmm. is magical. Yeah. Magical. Uh, what is your favorite plant party restaurant? Your favorite place to get plants? I know you just recently moved to Rhode Island. So do you have any favorite plant spots there? Um, you know, I, to be honest with you, I've more so been exploring like all of the clam shacks and the lobster shacks. uh here in Rhode Island and in Maine so I haven't I don't know I don't eat out a lot to be honest with you I love cooking it's just it's my thing but I can give some recommendations of like places I used to live does that work I don't know whatever I mean if you don't eat out then we'll just say your own kitchen yeah my own kitchen there you go perfect (laughs) (laughs) and then what in your own kitchen what is your most used kitchen tool oh I think that's another tie Go for it. Um, I would either say my Vitamix. Mm-hmm. You use my Vitamix a lot for like smoothies, nut butters, soups, you know, milk, Everything. all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe my knives. I use my knives all the time and I love my knives. What brand of knives do you have? Do you know? Um, we, I think it's called Schmidt Brothers. Oh, I've never heard uh, of those. We got it from Crate and Barrel. Cool. It's a really good thing. But, yeah. Was that a, a registry item, wedding item? It was. It sure was. It was the <laughs> biggest registry item on our registry list, and we we sure got it. And it was nice. my favorite favorite gift. Oh yay! That's <laughs> I love that you know that. Uh, well, do you have Do you have knives on your registry? We were gonna put them on our registry, but I have a. Re- it was a very tough de- debacle because I have a knife I really love, but they didn't have a good set with the brand that I love. I don't remember the brand off the top of my head. So, I don't know. I already have a good knife. Okay. How many do I need, right? Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) That's my answer. Okay. Uh, What is a book that has inspired you in an awesome way? Huh. Uh, Well, my Bible. (laughs) All right, now. (laughs) That's a given for me. My Bible. And so there's Bible and Brene Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I love Uh, it. Which yeah. Renee Brown book? Um, I, I haven't read any. The The Gifts of Imperfection is is amazing. She talks about like worthiness and courage and com- compassion and connection. It's just, it was a really powerful book for me to read when I was learning to love myself again. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I hope you meet yeah. her someday. That would be amazing. I feel like be a you dream. will. You need to. Like meeting Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Bible and Brene Brown. Um, so where can people stay connected to you? Um, well, they can go to BrittanyPiper.com. I don't spell my name like Brittany Spears. It's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y <laughs> Piper.com. Um, they can follow me on Instagram at Brit's Beating Heart. Beating like, you know, the, the beat. Mm-hmm. The veggies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or they can go to On The Mend Retreat on Instagram uh, to find out more about our upcoming workshop. Amazing. You are amazing. This was a long chat. Thank you for sticking by and being so vulnerable and honest and um, 
keep doing the good work. You're, you're an awesome gal. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I love connecting with you. Thanks so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. My dad says I shouldn't have put this out on Thanksgiving, but I stand by it being Thanksgiving appropriate because this convo inspired me to reframe the trauma I've experienced in my past into a thing to be thankful for. So take that, dad. And hey, dad, back off. Those cookies are for tomorrow. Man, being home for the holidays is tough. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. I hope this episode inspired you to own whatever happened to you in your past more fully. I mean, I know some stuff has happened. It's not like This Is Us makes all of us cry because it's just so unrelatable. The show notes for this episode can be found at partyinmyplants.com slash 118. And I'll talk to you soon.